Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new legal developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we're going to be talking about restricting access to school property. Uh, this fall, for a variety of reasons, we witnessed a rise in the number of aggressive, disruptive patrons who believe that they have an absolute right to access school property and to say when and how they want to do so. Um, and in response, uh, we have had a number of questions from our clients about what can be done to limit or restrict access to school property. It can be difficult, I think, to strike a balance. Um, we want to minimize disruptions to school property, yet avoid infringing upon anybody, anybody's individual uh, rights as a citizen. So a um, lot to think about here in striking that balance. Probably the best place to begin is with a discussion about the law very, very generally. I'm going to start at about maybe 80 to 100,000 feet up here. <laughs> um, you know, one common misconception that we seem to get about school property is that since it is public property, the general public has an absolute right to access the public school. And that's just simply not the case. Uh, the right to access public school property is just not absolute. Um, it is critical to understand um, and to understanding how restrictions on public property work, uh, it's critical to understand that there are a variety of types of public property, and they're treated differently under the law. You know, first, I would say there's, there's property that's been historically uh, open uh, to the public, like sidewalks and parks and town squares and the like. Um, and this is the type of property that can generally be accessed by the general public as long as patrons don't become disruptive or harassing in their conduct. Um, this is not going to be the category of property for most school premises. Um, what I would say is there's a second category, and it is one that most school property does fall into, and that's property that's open to the public for a limited purpose. Um, the general public is permitted to access this type of property, but is only permitted to access certain areas or access the property for certain limited purposes. Um, and as I said, this is the type of property that most schools fall under. Because public schools aren't, are limited uh, public forums, uh, schools have discretion to restrict entry of outsiders, particularly while, while school is in session. Um, and if members of the general public go into places in the school that are restricted, well, they may be liable for trespass. As I said, that's kind of the 80 to 100,000 foot uh, view of, of things uh, involving restricting access to school property. I think today we want to focus not just uh, on restricting access, but also possibly the possibility of banning uh, individuals because they have demonstrated behavior that would warrant uh, the restriction of their access to schools. And so joining me today uh, to talk about what it looks like a little closer to the ground is my partner, uh, Tom Smith. Welcome, Tom. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. 
This is a fun topic. Um, it's one that you've had to deal with a, a fair amount um, over the past year, um, given that we've had some what I will call aggressive and disruptive <laughs> parents. Um, That's a good um, way to put it, I think. Yeah. Um, let's just start with the baseline, Tom. Uh, you know, can public school districts restrict someone's access to district property? Yeah, they certainly can. Uh, you know, you, you your discussion about the types of forum was, was spot on. You know, it is a limited public forum. We have the ability to place restrictions on access. Um, those need to be reasonable and viewpoint neutral because we have to be cognizant of the patrons' rights. Um, but we also have to make sure that the uh, school school operations are functioning properly. They're not being disrupted. So as you said, it's a careful balancing act. But generally speaking, yes, we have the right to limit someone's access. Really what it comes down to is are, do we have a rule in place, a policy? Is there a law that they're breaking, a policy? Or are they just generally causing a material disruption? And when we have those instances, then we're able to tell someone, you can't come back for a limited period of time. Uh, if it's a repeat offender, you, you, you just can't come back. Uh, or we would just restrict their access in other ways. You are only allowed to come back for these specific reasons. Well, I suppose in some ways disruptive is in the eye of the uh, beholder. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, can you can you give us uh, some examples of the types of actions that might uh, warrant restricting access? Well, if I gave you all the examples I have, we'd probably be here for way too long. So <laughs> I'll limit it to to the high the, the high points here. Um, we've had instances where district patrons, whether they be parents or just community members have threatened staff members they, to physically harm them. They've even, in some cases, threatened to harm students. Uh, we've had other instances where they just refuse to follow a, a policy or a rule. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of one instance where we had a parent that refused to comply with a, a mask mandate that was within the district, uh, just flat out refused multiple times. Uh, there, we also have incidents where there's actually been a physical assault, not just a threat. Uh, and then just generally causing disruptions, you know, especially for athletic events, yelling, screaming at the other team, at the referees, the officials, uh, screaming obscenities at them, just generally disrupting the entire event and causing, uh, causing a scene in front of everybody that we've got to deal with that interferes with whatever that activity is. Okay, well... Um... How does this work from a practical perspective? You, you know, a lot of times that same parent that's engaged in some of the, you know, examples of conduct that you just described, you know, they still have a kid in school. And so you still have the issues of, you know, pick up or drop off or maybe parent teacher conferences or, you know, some of the continuing athletic events or concerts and that sort of thing, you know. Talk to us about the practical aspects of how do you work this? Well, we've got a lot of options with it, right? So, you know, with all the different things you mentioned, there, there's different ways that we can think outside of the box, get creative and find ways to still provide some form of access or communication, maybe in a modified way that uh, helps protect the, whether it's district staff, other district students, or just general district operations. And it really depends on the conduct too that we're talking about. You know, the more severe the conduct, the more 
restrictive we may want to be. What I usually recommend is taking a phased approach based on the conduct. So if it's something that it, it's a violation of our policy, it happened one time, uh, it's not something that's too serious, it's not an assault or a threat to commit an assault, then maybe we, we take a phased approach with it and we start by saying, you're, restrict, you're restricted from coming onto district property except in these instances. You can come on for pickup and drop off as long as you stay in your car. Uh, you can come to meet with your students' teachers. Um, you know, if it happened at an athletic event, we may say you can't come to athletic ev events for a certain period of time. Uh, but kind of tailoring what the what restrictions we're putting in place based on the conduct is a good way to start, and then see how they react from there. If that doesn't deter the conduct or things just get worse, then you can place additional restrictions. So. If you tell them you can come pick up your kid or, or drop them off as long as you stay in your car and they refuse and they get out of their car and they start yelling at staff members or other students, then we say, okay, you can't come pick up and drop off your kid anymore. So just kind of focusing on, on what their conduct was and whether or not it continues and developing the restriction based off of that is really going to help you narrow down and try to deter that, that conduct from happening in the future. Good. You know, that's a good insight there, uh, Tom. One of the things that I wonder about, and, and we end up talking a lot about, uh, especially over the last six months, is board meetings. And the topic of board meetings seems to be one that keeps coming up and whether or not, um, they, you know, a school can restrict access uh, of a patron that maybe has been disruptive at a board meeting or perhaps they've been disruptive in another setting. It seems like people think of board meetings a little bit differently and because it is an opportunity to potentially address the board, uh, you know, observe the board as it governs or makes decisions as the governing body for the school district. Talk to us about board meetings and, and what comes into play with that. Sure. You know, board meetings are a little bit different um, because we do have the sunshine law that requires us to have open meetings that are uh, that the public is able to come and attend. So when we talk about restricting someone's access to district property, not letting them on district property, in the context of board meetings, we have to be cognizant of the requirements of the sunshine. So if we have a patron that is disruptive or violating rules in a separate instance, not related to a board meeting, it's going to be very difficult for us to justify restricting them from coming to board meetings completely in person if the conduct isn't really related to or isn't something that could happen again at a board meeting or isn't serious enough to warrant that uh, because they do have that right under the sunshine law. But there's other things we can do as well. You know, if something happens at an actual board meeting that disrupts the meeting, prevents the board from having an orderly and efficient meeting, and especially if it's violating something that we have a, a specific board policy on that says that you know patrons are not allowed to do X, then we have more grounds to say, you can't come in person anymore. But again, we get back to that phased approach. And I think that's the best uh, method to use, especially when it comes to board meetings. So if we have something happen at a board meeting uh, and, and they violate a rule, they're disruptive, rather than just saying, hey, you can't come back and leave it at that, it would be, you, we're going to restrict you from coming in person, but we're going to provide you with another form of access. So we're going to stream the meeting electronically and allow you to watch that. 
we're going to allow you to submit written comments to the board uh, rather than actually coming and speaking in person. So all the board will, all the board members will see the your comments and they'll have them. Things like that will still allow us to be able to say, you are being provided with access. You can see what's going on at the meeting. You can address the board, uh, but because of your conduct at the meeting, we're not going to allow you to be there in person because you are disrupting. Okay, sounds like you're saying that you know a lot of times it needs to be at the board meeting, but not excluding the idea that if somebody engages in severe conduct outside of a board meeting setting, uh, in particular, say. Just to give you an example, say we have a threat of violence that's aimed at the superintendent or a particular board member that we know are, you know, they're going to have to be at that meeting. The previous conduct wouldn't necessarily have to be at a board meeting. It's just that um, you're going to have to show the connection between that severe conduct and the meeting it's taking place. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, you know, it depends on the conduct. And then, you know, even, under, even though they have that right under the Sunshine Law, it's not an absolute right with unfettered access to, to public board meetings. We, I mean, there's even a law about, you know, if you're on the, the sex offender registry, then you're not allowed to be on district property. Uh, and we have discretion on whether or not we uh, allow someone to come on property, even if they are a registered sex offender. But there's things that you can do that will make it so that we do have the right to say, no, you can't come in person to a board meeting. Gotcha. Well, um, you know, in the board meeting context and really outside of the board meeting context, one of the things that comes up, uh, it seems to me, involves the media and the media's access um, to school property, whether it be in a board meeting or just trying to get into a building. Um, you know, is there are there special rules that apply to the media? I mean, how's this work? There really aren't. The same rules apply to the media just as any other community member that wants to come into a school, particularly while classes are in session. Just because they're a member of the media doesn't mean that they can walk in in the middle of the school day and go wherever they want and start interviewing teachers. They don't get unfettered access because of that. Um, we have some, some more restrictions in terms of board meetings when it comes to the media, but we still can limit their their access to district buildings just like we would with any other patron. With the media, it, it you know that it does get ramped up a little bit because of, of who they are. But you know, I think if they wanted to come on on campus and wanted to go inside a district building to to film a story, we can tell them no. But if they wanted to set up on the sidewalk outside and film, then we'd have a harder time telling them no in that instance. Gotcha. I kind of want to get into some of the procedural aspects of this and what, you know, what kind of process a school needs to undertake in order to deal with somebody and restricting their access to school property. Let's start with, uh, I mean, just the basic of uh, who gets to make that or who has to make uh, the decision uh, to restrict access or perhaps ban somebody from premises. That's really going to depend on your board policies. That That's, going to spell out who who's going to take that action. Most of the time, it's going to be the superintendent uh, or the superintendent's designee. Uh, that would be the individual. So if you have an incident that happens, uh, let's say at an athletic event after school at a middle school or one of the high schools, and the principal is there and, and witnesses it, that principal wouldn't have the authority under policy to say, okay, you can't come back to athletic events anymore. What they would do is report that to the superintendent. Um, 
Ideally, we'd be getting written statements from witnesses, things like that. All of that information gets reported to the superintendent. Superintendent reviews it. They may contact that individual depending on the situation. Uh, and then they would decide whether or not access is going to be restricted or if they're just going to be banned outright. Okay, so you were talking a little bit earlier about kind of a phased approach, I think is what you called it. And, you know, with the idea that there needs to be some, perhaps for lack of a better way of phrasing it, progressive discipline here, progressive consequences. So, you know, it kind of begs the question of how long uh, should you should you restrict that? I mean, can you just say, okay, you can never come back ever to our property? I mean, is that something that's realistic, or how should it how should that part of it work? I think it's realistic in certain situations, and I feel like a broken record a little bit, but I'm going to say it again. It depends. Uh, it really depends on the conduct. Um, you know, you want to start with those shorter periods, so maybe it's uh, a semester or a quarter or even a school year, depending on what the conduct is. You know, if you have a parent that's yelling obscenities at a referee or an official during an athletic event, maybe we start with, hey, you're not allowed to come back to any more games this season, or you're not allowed to come to any athletic events this semester. But if it's something pretty egregious, like a threat against a staff member or even a board member, then we would say, okay, you don't get to come back the rest of the year. But if once you have enough serious violations that are that are continuing, and it may only require two, uh, and it may even just be one, if the conduct is severe enough, then you can say you don't get to come back at all. But we it's a really high bar before we want to do that on the first instance, and then we save it for those repeat offenders. So we say, okay, you can't come back for a semester. They violate that, or as soon as that that restriction is up they come back and they do the exact same thing. Then we ramp it up to the school year. And then if they do it again, we say, okay, now it's going to be for X amount of years, or we just say, you know what, you can't come to our athletic events anymore. Good. Well, you know, when, um, let's say you have banned me from the premises, you're the superintendent, um, you've banned me, you know, what's my recourse? It, it, can, I, can I appeal it to the board or, you know, how's that work? You can certainly appeal it to the board. There may be the policy, the board policies may have a, an appeal mechanism built in them already. But even if they don't, you still, the board will always have the option of, of hearing an appeal if they want to from, from a patron that has had their access restricted or just given an outright ban. Uh, they The patron would simply request it of a board member or the board as a whole. And then if the board decided, the entire board, um, or at least a majority of them decided they wanted to hear the appeal, then they, they would have the right to do that uh, in their position as the board. So how's that supposed to work? If you know, you've, you have, you've banned me from the premises, how am I supposed to have a, an opportunity to talk to the board about it if, <laughs> if I can't come on property? That's the difficulty with it, isn't it? You know, I, I think that uh, it's, it's one of those things where you may, that may have to be one of the exceptions to the ban. Or, or the restriction, if you're going to allow them to come in person. But you also need to think about, depending on what the conduct is, it may be a danger to the board or to staff members to even allow this person to come address the board. Uh, you know, I'm thinking instances where someone may have threatened a board member or threatened the superintendent. If you allow them to then come back on property in front of that board member they threatened or in front of the superintendent they threatened, 
you're putting you're putting the district and you're putting those individuals in a really dangerous position when you allow that. So maybe it's a situation where again you get creative, you think out of the box, and you say, "Well, we'll hear your appeal, but we're going to do it by Zoom." Um, and they also need to understand that when we're talking about a district patron and an appeal of a, a, a restriction on access or a ban, that's going to be an open meeting. If you want to talk to the entire board and appeal that, that's not, you know, that we're not talking about confidential student information under FERPA or uh, individually identifiable personnel records. We're talking about a community member that's not going to fall under a closed session under the sunshine law. So if they want to do that, that's fine. They just need to understand that all of that's going to be out there for anyone to see. So it kind of gives you a disincentive, or if you're the board, to even have uh, an appeal heard, right? Because it's going to be open session and it may be a show. Yeah, there's that aspect of it. You know, another aspect of it is that it may actually be helpful. You know, if you have a patron or an individual that is adamant that we got it wrong. They didn't do what we're accusing them of. And they keep saying that over and over, but we have, we have it on video. We have multiple witnesses that have provided written statements about it. There's no, there's no evidence to suggest that this didn't happen, but this person just is, is adamant and they will not let it go. Then maybe it, Maybe that having that appeal is the way to do it, to be able to show, okay, hey, here's all the evidence. Here's a video of you doing this. Do you still want to say that you didn't do it? That's a good point. You know, um, I guess one of the questions I would have for you is that if, okay, we've got somebody that has had their access restricted, or maybe it's not that they've had their access restricted, but they've um, exceeded the scope of what we would allow somebody to do. You know, the building is open for a basketball game and we find them wandering around the superintendent's office or something of that nature. Um, you know, what happens if somebody has, you know, violated the restrictions or gone beyond what their access is allowed? I think we need to contact law enforcement in that instance. You know, it may be depending on the situation, you can just talk to them and say, hey, you, you can't be doing this. You know that. Um, and, and they leave and it's not a big deal. But most of the time, especially if you have someone that is already under limited or restricted access because of previous conduct, they know what they're doing and they're doing it purposefully. So in that instance, we recommend contacting law enforcement and having them issue a trespass citation to that individual. Uh, and typically that's what we will tell them in that initial notification of what their restrictions are. If you fail to follow these, you will. We will uh, have a trespass citation issued to you through law enforcement. So that's going to be the the best way to handle it, because then not only are you following up on the restrictions that you've placed on that person, but then you're increasing the documentation of them not following it. So if they were to later try to come and uh, file a claim and say, "Well, you know, you." increase the restriction. Not only did you place the restrictions on me in the first place, but then you increased them or you increased the length of time they were in effect for, and accused me of violating those restrictions when I did. Well, now we've got a police report and we've got a trespassing citation issued to them that outlines exactly what they did. And it's not just us that, say, that is saying that they did that. It's also law enforcement as well. And that puts us in a much better position. 
just to be clear, Tom, I mean, you're what you're saying is that even though it's public property, it can be trespassing. Yes, exactly. If and we tell them that they can't be there, then law enforcement can issue them a trespass citation. Gotcha. Okay, well, uh, a lot of good information here about this specific issue, but let's. Uh, here's what I want to leave you with, or give you a chance to kind of close this thing out. Tom is, you know, if you're talking to a district, what steps would you advise them to take that would put them in the best possible position? If they have somebody that is kind of kind of challenging some of this restricted access. Sure. So it starts with having policies in place, board policies that have clear behavioral expectations for visitors to district property. Uh, and that also designate the individual that's going to be responsible for restricting access when people violate those rules. And if if you want to have an appeal mechanism, you'd write that into the policy as well. But if you start with uh, a very comprehensive view of what conduct we're not going to permit from visitors to district property, that sets you up for when people do come on and cause those disruptions or um, create that misconduct that we have that policy to rely on to say you violated this policy, it was in effect when you did this. The second thing we want to do is when that those events occur, we want to document that whatever administrator or staff member that, that observes it, any of them that observe it, we want to get written statements from witnesses, from other staff members, uh, so that we have that documentation of exactly what happened and we're not relying on people's memory after the fact. And then once we have all that documentation and the decision's been made to actually uh, limit access or restrict it, we want to provide written notice to that individual that sets it out very clearly. What are those restrictions? How long are they in effect? And what's going to happen if they don't follow? Them? And then from there, we make sure that the relevant staff members in our buildings know about the, you know, the restrictions that are in place, who they're against, and how long they're in effect. And then we want to make sure the last thing we want to do is make sure we have very good communication with law enforcement. Because what we've seen, unfortunately, in the past is we may say, okay, here's the restrictions. And then when we try to contact law enforcement to come over, they say, well, we're not going to deal with that. Uh, but if we are talking with them ahead of time and we're laying out what the process is going to be and they understand what our process is so that when they get the call, they know all the steps we've already gone through, they're going to be much more likely to respond and issue that trespass citation. Great observations, Tom, and, and, and thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts on restricting access to school property. Happy to and, do it. And we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today to listen to Ed Council Insights. We hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcasts on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Or you can check us out at our website, just Google Ed Council, that's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.